Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the daily podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear, page by page. This is page 322, in the bottom of the arrow catch. I fit the arrow catch onto the device and pressed down on the lever with my foot until I heard a sharp click. Then I rotated the arrow catch and repeated the process. Kilvin bent to pick it up and turn it over in his huge hands. Heavy, he commented. It needed to be sturdy, I said. A crossbow bolt can punch through a two-inch oak plank. I needed the spring to snap back with at least three times that much force to stop the arrow. Kilvin shook the arrow catch idly, holding it to the side of his head. It didn't make any noise. And what if the arrowheads are not made of metal, he asked. The Sembi raiders are said to use arrows of flint or obsidian. I looked down at my hands and sighed. Well, I said slowly, if the arrowheads aren't of some sort of iron, the arrow catch wouldn't trigger when they came within 20 feet. Kilvin made a non-committal grunt and set the arrow catch back down on the table with a thump. But, I said brightly, when it came within 15 feet, any piece of sharp stone or glass would trigger a different set of bindings. I tapped my schema. I was proud of it, as I'd also had the foresight to inscribe the inset pieces of obsidian with the sigildry for twice-tough glass. That way, they wouldn't shatter under the impact. Kilvin glanced at the schema, then grinned proudly and chuckled deep in his chest. Good, good. What if the arrow has a head of bone or ivory? The runes for bone aren't trusted to a lowly Rilar like myself, I said. And if they were? Kilvin asked. Then I still wouldn't use them, I said, lest some child doing a cartwheel triggers the arrow catch with a thin, quickly moving piece of his skull. Kilvin nodded his approval. I was thinking of a galloping horse, he said, but you show your wisdom in this. You show you have the careful mind of an artificer. I turned back to the schema and pointed. That said, Master Kelvin, at ten feet, a fast-moving, cylindrical piece of wood will trigger the arrow catch. I sighed. It's not a good link, but it's enough to stop the arrow, or at least deflect it. Kelvin bent to examine the schema more closely, his eyes wandering the crowded page for a long couple of minutes. All iron, he asked. Closer to steel, Master Kilvin, I worried iron would be too brittle in the long term. And each of these 18 bindings are inscribed on each of the springs, he asked, gesturing. I'm Jordana. That's the page. I'm Jeremy. I'm Nick. And the reason this reminds me of code is because this is a series of if statements. If arrow within 20 feet and arrowhead equals metal, trigger. Else, if arrow within 15 feet and arrow equals obsidian, trigger. Else, arrow within 10 feet, uh, cylindrical wood, trigger. Maybe I'm missing something here, but wouldn't the elegant solution just be to say, if cylindrical wood within 20 feet, trigger? I think the binding, like he's the strongest binding is against iron or something like that. I I, I hear what you're saying, Jeremy, but I think it's also like, common objects right like the most common arrowheads are iron and there's an awful lot of cylindrical wood so maybe you don't want to i think like the the polished version of this would probably have like settings or sensitivity or something like that wagon wheels have have wooden spokes on them some of them so yeah like i i can see why why that would be the case now um but i do think this is also an illustration of Kvothe's showmanship right because he lets kilvin believe at first that he hasn't accounted for this problem when kilvin says you know what if the arrowheads aren't made of metal folk goes well you know i couldn't do but i did do this i did think of that master kilvin and kilvin is is duly impressed by that i also think that it's 
good characterization of Kilvin that we find out at the end of the chapter that he's like really impressed by this. He thinks this is like a remarkable invention, but he plays his cards really close to the chest and or Quoth can't tell how he feels about it, right? Yes, I think so too. This is a great chapter for those reasons. I'm sure Kilvin reads this in the schema, but he doesn't tell Kilvin the piece about how he uh, how he made all the glass that's inside the uh, the obsidian that's inside the arrow catch. He inscribed it with runes so that it wouldn't shatter when it got hit by the arrow. So he not only did he think, what if they're using obsidian arrowheads, but also obsidian is brittle. So I have to make my obsidian tough enough that it can get hit by more than one arrow and still be usable. Mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting choice that Quoth sort of needles Kilvin for not letting him get the blood and bone. I think the safest answer to the question of what if the arrows are made of bone would be, well, I wouldn't want to hurt someone, right? But before he gets to that, he says, well, I, even if I wanted to, I couldn't have possibly got those those runes because you wouldn't let me. Oh, I don't see him as needling Kilvin. I think he's genuinely deferential there. I think he's saying like those, like, I don't have access to those because they're beyond my skill. I don't think he's trying to pick a fight, but I do think that it's odd not to go straight to the actual answer, which is I wouldn't want to hurt somebody. I don't know. I think he's covering all his bases here. I wouldn't use them not only because I'm not allowed to, because I'm not smart enough yet, but also because it's like not a good engineering design tactic. Mm-hmm. Because people I wonder though, if Quoth had had access to the runes, if he wasn't precluded from adding them because of his rank, if he would have skipped that, thought process maybe i don't think so but maybe that is an illustration of exactly why those rules are in place so that you can ensure that someone has the careful mind of an artificer before you let them start screwing around with blood and bone (laughs) jordana you've been uncharacteristically quiet tell us your thoughts I've, i've been very confused and talking in the chat to attempt to understand something from the last page see jordana this is why we need to keep the chat as like a sidebar so that it's driving we don't, me insane. I can't put it down. It's confusing me so much. Jordana, we are generating audio content for the listeners. You and Jeremy are very good at that. You don't need me. <laughs> we do, Jordana. You're an important. Uh, what's the center of a yin yang? <laughs> Jordana, offense. It's offense. Jordana, we can't have a two podcast where two white guys talk about some bullshit. Yes, we need you to temper us. So what you're saying is I'm the token lady. I'm saying it's illegal. <laughs> the podcasters, like law, makes it illegal. And uh, uh, where can we find this podcast law, Jeremy? Well, you can find our podcast at twitch.tv slash page of the wind every Sunday. So you too can you participate can in, the in the conversation <laughs> and beguile Jordana. Yeah, you two can distract Jordana from her actual job for which she gets paid. That's right. Which is to be on this podcast. I'm sorry, I will be more attentive. Now we have a letter. Shall we read it? Why not? I guess Jordana doesn't have anything to say about this page. Yeah, sorry. She didn't even read the page. I bet she hasn't even read this book. Ah, rude. (laughs) (laughs) This letter is from Tim, who writes on Modigan Stereotypes. I listened to your episode on page 276 of Wise Man's Fear today, and I think you have Simmons' reaction to to Modigan stereotypes wrong. Modigans aren't known as promiscuous so much as sexually skilled. Sovoy, a very stereotypical Modigan noble student in Name of the Wind, says of a Turin culture, Your religion is barbaric and prudish. Your whores are intolerably ignorant and unmannerly. While it's true that this implies more related 
more relaxed sexual norms in Modeg than Atur, I don't think it means the Turins think of Modegans as slutty. They are, after all, very wealthy, powerful, and culturally influential. They openly have sex with courtesans. That doesn't mean they would stoop to the likes of you, you dirty, ham-handed Aturin. Later in the book, Vashet compares the Adam attraction to the taboo of music to the Aturin fascination with the skill of the Modigan courtesans. With regard to Fela, I believe Will and Sim are thinking of the fabled Modigan sexual prowess and not of how it might be easier to get her to bed, because she has no particular religious objection to extramarital sexual relationships, a thing Simon also apparently shares or ignores. Signed, Tim. I don't know. To me, one follows the other. If you think that a culture's sexual taboos are more relaxed, then you're more inclined to think of them as slutty. I mean, I don't think of Fela as being a character who seems like she's a little more promiscuous. I think that all of that needs to be found in the cultural reading. And I think Tim's reading is maybe like a little more supported by the text, but I don't think either of them are wrong. I think it just comes with like, where do you think cultural uh, assumptions arrive yeah like going back to the french who are in our world stereotypically seen as like promiscuous and having like lax sexual morals that comes from the fact that french culture did find it like kind of acceptable to have a mistress if you were a man of a certain kind of culture and did find it like more acceptable to like be less stuck up about your romantic interest in people and from those things about their culture that are kind of true, then the stereotype of like the the insatiable horned dog Frenchman who was a great romantic and he will chase around this cat who is clearly not interested in me as skunk, but her tail has been painted white and suddenly I find her very attractive. Like that's where that stereotype comes from. So that's not, to, but like that doesn't mean that all French people are Pepe Le Pew insatiable horned dogs. I'm sure there's lots of like French prudes out there, but the cultural stereotype exists nonetheless. I don't really, I, I have nothing to add to that. I don't, I don't know what to say. <laughs> you can say, Jordana, that you will post feet on our next stream. No, no, Jordana, you don't need to post feet. Jeremy, you can post All feet. right. Yeah. If Jeremy, we get up to, if we get up to, nice if we get up to 200 subscribers to our Patreon, I will post feet. All right. We'll add that as a stretch goal. Also, I know we sidebarred the, the chat and I still think we should sidebar this ongoing argument, but Patrick, not Rothfuss, lest you write us a letter about this, I think we can talk comment on this in the episode, that Quoth actually does have the runes for Blood and Bone because he needed to get them to make the gram. So he does have those runes. He did, in fact, he, maybe he's being like coy, you know, making a little joke for himself, like, oh, but I couldn't possibly have those runes. Interesting then that he doesn't tell us any of that here. Well... Because we're attentive readers, we remember. I'm not attentive. I forgot. I didn't. I don't remember reading that ever. Okay, fair enough. But also, arguably, this this passage is kind of written from Kilvin's perspective. Like, obviously, it's Quoth's perspective, but he's sort of like dancing over to Kilvin's shoulder so that we, the readers, are experiencing things as Kilvin does. So he's sort of presenting us the information that Kilvin has. Well, it's Quoth describing Kilvin's reaction to the thing. So he's not really giving us access access to his inner life. But why? Ah, uh, the question we end every episode on. That is definitely not the same thing we end every episode on. Although, it's a, I feel like it's better than As we always we do, we will answer. Jordana, do you want no. me to go back to ending every episode with talking no, about cranking really out another one? <laughs> no, it's I will. <laughs> All right, we will answer the question why on tomorrow's episode of Paige. Of uh, the... Where? where?